Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, and I'm joined today by the president and CEO and general counsel of the Jewelers Vigilance Committee, Tiffany Stevens. Tiffany, thanks for being with us today. I'm so happy to be here with you today. The Jewelers Vigilance Committee, or JVC. Uh, so it's not a, not a super subtle name, um, really pretty descriptive, um, if not catchy. But I have to admit, I'm really, um, for me, it evokes a well-armed Shamrim kind of patrolling 34th Street. So what is it? So we have an old fashioned name and that's because we're 105 years old, founded here in New York City in 1917 during the progressive era, which strangely has a lot of uh, parallels to our current time. Um, but we are founded for jewelers by jewelers to sort of be what you're talking about at first. And we've evolved over the years and been shifted, shifted and been many, many things but we are the industry's only independent advocate. So we advocate for the industry on a lot of different levels, um, which I'm sure we'll get into today. Yeah. Well, let's back up and get into a little bit of history on you. So you graduated from arguably the finest <laughs> law school on the planet, NYU. Um, a fellow fighting pilot. <laughs> what years were, the, were you there? And did those early days downtown, did that in some way inform your desire to, to build your career somewhat in, um, in fashion uh, as well as law? So I graduated uh, from NYU in 2002. So those, uh, those very early aughts were my years. And I mean, what can you say? I mean, like, it, it was amazing. Like I, the just <laughs> intensity of being young and in New York, those first few years are like indelible. Um, later today, I'm going to a friend's showroom on the same block that I lived on on Mercer Street. And I'm sure I'll have all those like memories coming right back to me. Um, yeah, I mean, the first few years in the city were just magical. And, you know, I, I grew up in mostly in Oklahoma. So it's quite a transition. I, I lived in uh, DC and Boston first, which were good gateway <laughs> buildups. I'm sure my head would have exploded if I came to, straight to New York, but certainly like those first, that first little bit, uh, first few years being in New York were just totally magical. And just like taking in to your point, living in NoHo, taking in as much art and culture as I possibly could, which I feel like I'm still doing 20 years later, but definitely shaped me in many ways, including um, being interested in arts and culture and fashion. Many of our listeners likely don't have the benefit of uh, fashion law curriculum at, uh, at their law schools. Um, and I don't think you did either, uh, since I wasn't teaching there uh, at the time uh, at NYU. So what, what coursework did you take and how did it benefit you in your current role? Sure. So I had sort of a split. Um, you know, you, you remember NYU is big on law and right. So right. I did like feminist interpretation of the Sharia law or, you know, just sort of these very interesting um, uh, classes that are not what you think of as a traditional law school class. 
And I, the most sort of important class that I took in law school was a one-year seminar okay. with um, Carol Gilligan, who's a famous feminist psychologist as a co-teacher, um, sort of teaching psychological resistance and like Western civilization as lived through the law. And for that class, it was a very serious class, as you can imagine. Yeah. And for that class, I wrote my A paper for law school on um, Legally Blonde. And the two professors at the time, it was considered like, you know, too superficial, too silly. And at the time I had to like appeal to them to approve me to write my thesis about Legally Blonde and the representation of a femme woman inside of a courtroom and how that operates. So maybe it was written way back then that eventually I would end up in this kind of a career. And then the other half of me, I took um, all the um, like LLM level tax classes. And my first law firm job was actually inside of the tax department. So my two interests were sort of this sociology, psychology, and then like tax theory. Undoubtedly, Legally Blonde has informed and inspired uh, a generation of young women who may have felt uh, that law school was not for them, that uh, the legal profession uh, was male dominated and perhaps too masculine. And I think, um, I think that's a great subject. We don't see examples of female partners. Um, In-house, interestingly, we see quite a few. Um, women like uh, NYU Law School alum uh, Sarah Moss at Estee Lauder uh, and yourself. How did you become a fashion lawyer from that big law start? Sure. Um, so I graduated in 2002, which was, you know, it's sort of like, be careful what you wish for. Every blessing is a curse in some way or so, some sort of wise saying like that. When, when I graduated in 2002, it was such a hot market. And I was doing interviews, you know, it's like, oh, maybe I'll live in this city. Maybe I'll live in that city. And I had just like 15 callbacks and, you know, they pay for everything. And I was really spoiled. Um, I had my heart set on getting a first year um, tax like placement as an associate, which even in a hot market was difficult because they're just big law and they've even moved away. They've even made their department smaller since then, but tax was not often as lucrative and it takes a long between people. So um, I ended up choosing Paula Hastings because I wanted to be in LA and give that a try. And um, I knew it was, wasn't gonna be forever. It was just sort of a fun way to start out. And I really wanted that tax spot and I got it. And so I was extremely lucky. Um, and you know, it's tough, it's weird. It's, you're so young. You know, at the time, I think I felt very uh, like oppressed and put upon, and looking back with more maturity, I think it was actually a really great opportunity. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's a big ask for a 25 year old, a 26 year old. I think it takes a special person to really be ready to be a big law firm associate at that age. So, um, you know, I had a successful um, run there for three, three years and I was a tax associate and I did a lot of real estate work in the hospitality and resorts practice as well which was interesting and kind of dovetails with eventually ending up in luxury. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I looked around and to your point earlier, um, and this is no dig on my firm specifically, this is sort of the larger culture. 
there just weren't female part. I, I just didn't see a path forward. I, I could see that as an associate, I would be allowed to work till three in the morning for the next seven, eight years. But it didn't seem like there was a step after that. It didn't seem like there was really a place for me at the table. So I thought, well, what's a better use of my time and energy to end up in the kind of life that I want? I don't think I'm going to make partner at a big law firm. It just doesn't seem possible. And I don't think any women from my class made partner. And I, and I think that speaks to the larger, again, the larger culture, which hopefully is changing. Yeah. But it felt necessary to start investing my time and energy somewhere else to, to create a life that I was really excited about. That's a shame and in ways a blessing. I know you are very fulfilled in your current role at the JVC. Um, but I think it's also pretty, pretty sound advice to young lawyers out there that two, really three years of practice in a big law setting are advisable before making a move. Um, so tell us a bit about the process of production of jewelry. You know, there's such a spectrum of, um, of artistry in jewelry. And um, certainly it's such a, I mean, I love jewelry. I could talk about it forever. It's such a profound thing. It comes from deep within the earth, as old as the stars, it, but it's seen as this you know, superficial, quote unquote, non-necessary thing. Um, and so much goes into making um, we don't have, we don't really have fast jewelry in the way we have fast fashion, right? I mean, right. there may be some like plated goods out there, costume jewelry or something, if you want to force that, but in fine jewelry, it's a much longer life cycle for everything in a much more, I think, thoughtful design process. Um, so, you know, there are certainly houses that have recurring uh, brands that have like recurring pieces that have stood the test of time that they still manufacture and sell. And we can all think of those like off the top of our head. At JVC, we work with those brands, um, but we also work with a lot of um, independent designers, which is really almost everybody else, um, even at sort of medium-sized uh, companies. And it's just fascinating. I've been really lucky to go into workshops here in New York City. I mean, there's still a lot of jewelry being made at benches in New York City. Mm -hmm. And what an amazing skill to have. Um, we've gotten an inside look at the uh, Innovation Lab at Tiffany & Company, which is absolutely fascinating. They've been coming up with some really controversial and super interesting ideas in the last few months, especially. Um, and then even getting to see on 47th Street above those street level offices are really the offices of a lot of jewelers. And there are um, what they call factories where they still cut diamonds. And there are these people who have been, this isn't something you learn in one year, <laughs> you know, who cut diamonds still on 47th street. So I think it's a very physical process. And certainly there's a lot being done overseas. Most things are cut in India. Obviously most things are mined outside of the United States, but there's so much um, artistic innovation with the design process, but then the physical making, a lot of it is still um, made here in the U.S. and it's just so really high skill, super super high skilled work. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just no, sort no, of the no, no. That, that leads I've to had. so many other rich questions. I think one of which is, as distinct from apparel production uh, and even accessories production, uh, jewelry is still made here in the U.S. While apparel production, accessories product production have really left 
uh, our shores. And um, that skill, the, the skill to do it is, is almost gone. Um, with some exceptions for denim production, perhaps in, in Southern California and, you know, pockets of North Carolina. Um, is that, um, do you take pride in that as, you know, as the JVC sure. in terms of, you know, not to be nationalistic about it because I'm- No, not at all. But And certainly there's a lot done. Everybody loves jewelry all around the world. So there's, <laughs> there's lots of manufacturing happening all over, but yeah, it does. I mean, and, and the design as well, we get to work with all of these um, artists who are designers, but also who have to run these very intense businesses. And we'll get into some of the legal issues that they all face. Um, and so it's interesting, even if people are just doing the design aspect, they have to deal with yeah. you know, maybe sometimes anti-money laundering or other issues. So it's interesting to see that. But I think I take a lot of pride too, like as a my adopted hometown of New York City, you know, it's like, I really am honored to have this job because it's given me um, an, an entree into the city in a very old industry in the city that's meant life and death to a lot of people, immigrants that come, come to the city. And um, so I take, I take that very seriously. And a lot of the businesses, even some of the bigger ones are still family, multi-generational owned and operated. So it's been a beautiful um, deepening into the real culture of New York to be so involved with this industry. And let's talk about some of those legal issues, perhaps to start uh, intellectual property. Um, and really as a juxtaposition from apparel, there are degrees of design protection uh, afforded to items of jewelry in copyright and certainly design patent. Uh, and then of course, in addition to, to the robust trademark rights that most fashion brands enjoy. Yeah, so I'll say as a caveat, um, we at JVC, we really try to focus on hyper-specific jewelry issues that other lawyers don't know about or haven't been trained on. So we do the broader IP practice. We usually refer to IP practitioners to give that like super specific legal advice. So I just caveat with that. Yeah. Um, we focus on... Um, how to advertise your goods, which we can get into a little bit more, which sort of overlaps with this. And then on the IP side, we give very general, um, very general guidance. And what we really add to the conversation on the IP side is, I don't know, like 30 years ago, there uh, we were granted standing to bring uh, opposition to trademarks. So every week we look at the trademark register and in our jewelry categories and see if there's anything that looks like it's anybody's applying for a term that's too broad. And we do bring action to oppose that. And we are successful about 100% of the time. Um, so that's our sort of um, contribution to the IP uh, situation is we try to keep the playing field level for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the, we get a lot of questions about sort of general copyright questions. We, um, and our advocacy work have a plan this year to talk a little bit more to the copyright office because it's our understanding that they haven't been approving jewelry trademarks at the rate that they used to. And we don't know if that's because of understaffing overwork or a change in philosophy. So that's kind of the, the level at which we get involved is try to shape the whole ecosystem. Um, and then we can refer out to one of our law firm partners for like super specific, like actual legal advice on um, someone's collection. The elements of copyright 
that are available to jewelry design as a, a more recognized form of, I'll call it art, uh, are pretty well understood, except in cases where that novelty, that requisite novelty of the design isn't present, right? Yeah, and artists always think, I mean, I paint, like I get it, artists always think that what they've done is like the first time that it's happened. And so honest, to be frank with you, a lot of the work we do around IP is talking people off the ledge of thinking that someone has violated their IP yeah. um, or sad to say that there's anything they can do about it for less than $50,000 with a private you know, uh, counsel. And we, the, the bitter pill is that oftentimes that type of copying is a sign of success. But now you're success. Now you know you're successful if people are copying you. Um, and do you want to invest whatever hundred thousand dollars in trying to stop someone in Brazil from copying what you're doing, or do you want to design your next collection and focus um, on the future? So sorry to be. Uh, oh, but that is sound. Know, that but... is that is practical business advice because these are business owners as well, and yeah. you cannot divide the cost associated with with protecting your rights from you know, the, the vigorous protection of your rights. It tends to be the big and the large and the deep pocketed that, that can do so and do do so as a result. But for emerging brands, it is really a challenge. Um, yeah, with, and with Section 230, you know, people can go Etsy, eBay, this is all Wild West time. I mean, people can go on those platforms and do just about anything with mm -hmm. really no repercussions, I'm sorry to say. Right. So um, yeah, there's a confluence of factors that, um, make it difficult, but we do, I mean, that being said, we do still ask, we do still help people reach out the first couple of times and try to stop it. You know, we want people to feel empowered and they should try, but um, it just becomes a question of how much of an investment do you want to make? Which is true probably with a lot of legal questions, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's talk a, a bit about sustainability. Uh, I think, Jewelry, by and large, unless it is very, very cheap costume jewelry, is made to last and avoids one of the main critiques of the fashion industry writ large on sustainability, which is so much of what's produced winds up thrown away in, in a landfill. I don't think that, that the jewelry sector um, needs to raise its hand you know, on that being, being something that they are uh, guilty of. But there are some elements of production which are pretty, quote unquote, dirty. Um, and there are some elements of supply chain that are difficult to know. Um, how does the JVC provide support in that regard? And what are you seeing your brands do in response to customers' questions in this area? This is, you know, obviously the hot topic <laughs> for good reason, right? Yeah. Um, so for us, this is a key area of what we work on. Um, I will say that, okay, so this year we know in 2022, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, which regulates how the industry, you know, regulates consumer deception broadly and has a whole set of principles that guide jewelry specifically and advertising will, uh, will be issuing an update to their so-called green guides which is another set of regulations that um, governs every industry and talks about the kind of eco and green claims you can and can't make. The situation we're in right now, as many listeners know, I'm sure, is that sustainability doesn't really mean anything. I mean, there, we have very little guidance. We have very dated, from a technology perspective, guidance on what we can and can't do. 
And we're seeing our most responsible, mo the brands that we know that are the most responsible and the most concerned have, it, have just stopped using the word sustainability altogether. And I think Patagonia has done that, right, as well on the apparel yeah. side. Um, instead, they just talk about what they're doing. They just tell the story of what they're doing and how they're doing it. That's not a sustainable approach, probably, because it's a very nuanced, complex, wordy approach. Yeah. So we'll spend a lot of time, once the FTC puts out their actual um, administrative you know, uh, filing or whatever, we will start working with every aspect of our industry to figure out what we're going to ask for and what we think sustainability will mean. We'll work with other industries, with apparel, with shoes, with all of our friends in other industries. And I think we'll be aligned on some things and we won't be aligned on other things because like you said, we are in fundamentally a different situation. But I would just draw people's attention to, if people are trying to solve this in real time, the message we have is for jewelry is that um, a building block of sustainability and responsible sourcing is having a very solid active anti-money laundering um, program in place because you can you're going to be asking questions of your vendors as part of that, that are really going to get to a lot of these same issues. So you can pile on a few extra questions when living that process and really meet, um, I think, meet the needs that you're trying to fill. And it might seem counterintuitive or it might seem strange, but we see anti-money laundering as really for jewelry, the building block of responsible sourcing. Oh, that's, that's great. And that's an interesting model. I mean, you know, so many, um, parallels to other areas of law that that I've heard applied, you know, that there should be disclosure system similar to a 34 Act type disclosure uh, on supply chain. Uh, but that is a good point that in in connection with the required anti-money laundering questions, you have open ears and you have a uh, you're, you're asking hard questions that, that yeah. need to be answered. And you're plugging it all into the OFAC lists and, and everything. And so the, and the OFAC list, because the philosophy is changing inside of Treasury itself, and they're looking at human rights, they're looking at all these different things, they're really widening the net. So if you can sync up with that system, you're going to end up kind of catching things that would be very difficult to catch otherwise. Yeah. Well, the retail industry uh, for fashion has really had a rough couple of years undoubtedly. And, um, but I've heard from a lot of our clients uh, in the jewelry space that they, they haven't. Um, how do you explain that? Uh, you know, I have my own theories, but how do you explain that? And uh, I guess you're nodding your head in affirmation. So, so we're in agreement. Yes, we're in agreement. Um, it's surreal, right? Because the world is on fire and falling apart in so many ways. And at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, everyone in our industry just as worried as everybody else. And I think it took a while for it to sink in that, hey, this is like the best year we've year now years we've had in decades. Yeah. And it's a strange thing to have a lot of um, financial success in a time that's so tragic for so many other reasons. I mean, I, why? Like, right, I'm sure we're on the same page. Like, rich people can't go anywhere. <laughs> so they're sort of buying bigger uh, pieces of jewelry than they ever have before. Technology is in a place where sellers are able to um, sell over Zoom, uh, sometimes to trusted clients, sometimes to new clients. Um, with the stock market being so high, you know, and more 
unmarried people, women are buying more for ourselves. I certainly bought jewelry during the pandemic. We're on Zoom, you can see, you can see my jewelry, you don't know what else I'm wearing. Um, people wanna look good on Zoom. And I think also there's just a primal lizard brain urge when things get really scary to go for commodities. And I think people wanna like put, they'd rather put some gold in their closet than um, you know maybe purchase other types of goods. So I think that's sort of the recipe for the success. And the big question inside our industry is, well, how long does it last? You know, a lot of very um, pessimistic people in the jewelry industry, which is funny, right? You wouldn't think that. But um, a lot of people are, you know, a little anxious about what goes up must come down. And is it is it binary? Like, is it jewelry or travel? Is it jewelry or uh, gowns? Uh, I think it's both. And I think, you know, some of our more forward thinking members have said, listen, we don't see this in, as a binary world anymore. And actually we've met new customers during this time. And one thing we have in common with more sorted goods probably is once someone gets their first hit of jewelry, they keep coming back. You've got a lifelong customer. If someone really starts getting into it, there's sort of no end to it. And it's fascinating and people get the fever. Okay. So um, I'm optimistic about the long-term success of this uh, rise. And certainly a lot of bigger brands, you know, where jewelry had been sort of the stepchild if they had um, different verticals of their brand. Now jewelry is the most profitable. So all of a sudden the folks working in the jewelry vertical are, have, have like all this visibility inside the brand. And so we've seen those, some of those people and some of those GCs come to us and go, oh my God, I know all about fashion. I know all about this. Like, what do I need to know about jewelry? I didn't really have to think about this before. Yeah. I'll stop there. I know I've been. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, actually, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to, I, I agree with you that I think the, the commodity element of jewelry has been one of its main advantages. Uh, and it is something that also makes it sustainable. The, the, the notion that I buy this and I can either resell it and or keep it forever and you know hand it down to the next generation um which i think more day-to-day -day fashion items should should have you know i i, I wouldn't mind spending 300 dollars on a t-shirt if i knew that that t-shirt was going to be something my grandkids could wear and there are fashion propositions that do they don't sell you a indestructible t-shirt <laughs> But they sell you, in a sense, a subscription to the T-shirt that you can always take it back and have it repaired or or get a new T-shirt that's made from upcycled fabric. And I think that's a wonderful um, potential future for the industry, fashion industry at large. And and the example is jewelry and watches. But um, maybe let's talk about um, some of the brands that you have either advised or you just know are in your orbit that are doing it right. And maybe give one example from the big houses uh, and maybe just list off those big houses for our listeners that may not know who they are. Uh, and, then, and then an emerging designer, because I know there are always emerging designers, but there's been a lot of noise about um, some younger designers and you know, um, Gen Z and millennials really being very, very into the jewelry space. On the sustainability side. Correct. Um, so I will say the big 
the big, I don't want to leave anybody out. We, I have 42 people. I report to our board of directors. I have 42 people on my board of directors, most of which are these big brands. So I feel like Listen, I don't, don't, don't out, go to 42, but it's but. every, no, I won't, but it's everybody <laughs> that you're thinking of, right? Like from the watch from, we haven't even talked about watches. We also uh, work a lot, you know, we cover watches as well. So everybody from Patek and Rolex to on the jewelry side, I mean, everybody, let's just say uh, Richemont and put everybody under the roof right. um, and, you know, um, LVMH and which now has a lot under its roof. Um, I mean, everybody that you can uh, think of we work with. And I would say that, you know, it's like these big companies, they're big companies, like they report to shareholders. They're very serious. They dot their I's and cross their T's. They have a working theory of, um, I think Keering's gotten a lot of uh, attention for this too, right? Yeah. They're really very invested in doing the right thing, actually doing the right thing, and then also appearing to do the right thing. So we do see um, that. One interesting note that I would make in cultural differences is in the US, I think, um, the consumer, maybe the companies and the consumer want to hear about the sustainability, right? It's a differentiator. It's like a di point of differentiation. My understanding is like the European customer assumes it about a luxury brand and to come forward for Chanel jewelry to come forward and say, by the way, this is our process and we're sustainable is a bit tacky and seems strange because of course you are, if you're selling at this price point, if you have this prestige, as a house, of course you're doing the right thing. Why would you even say that? This is my understanding as a you know, banal American. Um, so that's interesting too. And, I, and I'm really fascinated. And one, one project we're actually working on inside JVC, like preparing for this Green Guide stuff is the sort of intercultural understandings of sustainability and, and what it means in different cultures. Cause we can't just cultural imperialist style impose our ideas on everyone. And so certainly, and like you said, the, um, a lot of emerging brands, um, a lot of them are youthful idealists, which is fabulous. Um, and even the more established people want to do things the right way. But it's interesting because, you know, obviously the bigger houses, they just have more leverage. They're huge customers of stone dealers or metals dealers or whatever. They can set their terms. They can demand all kinds of things. The smaller players, it's harder to get your questions answered. It's harder to get in the door to even buy. You know, especially now supply is super constrained right now on the like material side. So you see these really great intentions that can be difficult to realize on the smaller uh, production side. And that's one, one place that we step in. So we did this two years ago for diamonds specifically, and we'll do it for once we have some definitions about <laughs> responsible sourcing from the FTC, we'll do it as well. We took um, the, the actual contracts from the big diamond, um, the big companies that buy diamonds anonymously, you know, redacted, redacted, put it all in our, uh, in our uh, pot, stirred it up and came up with a sort of um, templated vendor agreement where smaller players could, could see what the bigger players were asking for and try to make similar demands and ask for similar assurances. Um, but I think that's really, the sticking point, and I hope that the jewelry story to Gen Z, I'm so excited for Gen Z <laughs> um, to come up. I'm so curious about what these kids are gonna be like, and I'm hopeful that they love jewelry. And I'm hopeful that the jewelry story is one, like you said, like of sustainability, of, of long longevity, let's say. And you buy, you know, you dress perhaps for personal expression 
and I think you wear jewelry for personal expression as well, but it's so emotional. It's so sentimental. It's about, oh, my grandmother had this ring on. Oh, my, my mother gave these to me or whatever. There's that emotionality and that sense of um, history that's so different with jewelry that I hope the younger kids um, pick up on too. And yeah, so I think that we have a lot of work to do. We, you know, we're the original, we, we're so affiliated with like colonialism, let's say. <laughs> now that we're looking at things like colonialism more broadly in society, I mean, we're it, right? We're, the, we're ground zero of colonialism and, and diamonds and gold. But we have, that gives us such an opportunity to um, share how things are being done today. And, and what, I mean, dare I say it, like what some type of restorative justice could look like rather than just turning our heads away and pretending these issues don't exist. Well, that's a great example of, of collective action, which is often difficult to achieve for antitrust concerns and uh, you know, other, other concerns, but you know, the supply terms and, and you know, giving smaller brands an opportunity to, to share those because often the smaller brand is in a position, they may not even have a lawyer negotiating their supplier contracts, right? You know, they just, there's something they sign. Uh, they don't have their own form. And to know what the larger brands are getting and to have that disclosure um, for a good purpose, not for a cramming down the price purpose, right? But is great. And I think in, in industries as, as disparate as jewelry and apparel, I mean, there are so many brands. So, you know, the antitrust concerns, at least to me, have always been mitigated by that. There's, you know, I mean, this isn't such an example of collective action where no, the suppliers no, no. are being, um, being pinched. Um, no. Can I add one more thing to that? Oh, sure. <laughs> there, yeah. are also, there are also, but I'd be remiss not to mention, there are a ton of really interesting projects. And I just got back from Tucson like days ago, which is the color gemstone um, show where the whole world comes together in Tucson, Arizona to trade colored gems. Um, I just got back to that from that. We didn't get to do it last year. Um, and represented there are a lot of artisanal mining projects. So there are um, emerging designers here in the US who are teaming up directly with women miners in source countries to um, get their supply from them, to exchange goods. And as part of that, um, they're up, helping to upskill as well and train the women on what they actually have so they might find the rough and then sell it to like a middleman who sells it for a hundred X to a designer in the U S so they're helping the women identify, get some gemology education to understand what they actually already have and demand a higher price from that next seller. Um, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention there's like oh, a whole bunch of projects, some funded by oh. GIA. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, you can imagine I got to, um, I bought an opal from an Ethiopian woman who's part of this project. Um, and yeah, it's so cool. And there, there's a lot of that happening, Jewelry. The scale there is not huge, right? But there are a lot of those projects and I think that they all matter and make an impact for sure. Let's pivot to collaborations. Uh, that's a big part of the fashion conversation in creating media moments for brands, um, as well as really opening up new, new channels for consumers. Uh, how, how have you seen it used in jewelry? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, so let's see. <laughs> we tend to see, again, <laughs> another thing we do at the JVC is settle disputes along the supply chain from, from customers to jewelers as well as along the supply chain. So we sometimes see only when things go wrong, we help people settle things. So I won't bring any of those up. 
Right. Um, on the positive side, I would say, I mean, um, again, to bring up the Tiffany and Company Innovation Lab that are just doing such cool things. They did the thing with, they did the drop with Supreme, which is like so fun and really like stirred up some, uh, you know, a con cultural conversation. And I think things like that are so fun and really bring jewelry, um, you know, in front of uh, more audiences and make it cast it in a different light and all that stuff. It's really cool. Another, you know, we haven't talked at all yet about um, a big topic in our industry, which is lab grown diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a member who did a collaboration with, I think it was, I want to say Rolls Royce. Okay. And so they had, they outfitted a certain line of the Rolls Royce cars with, uh, lab, with lab grown diamonds inside. So, I mean, there's so many different um, opportunities. And now that jewelry is really outperforming every other segment, I'm sure we'll see Harry Styles and pearl necklaces. Like, I don't know, that seems like a collaboration that's happening. Well, what's interesting about that is it brings up the conversation of influencer deals, um, which are really, to my mind, very similar to collaborations. Um, because while the influencer deal is with an individual, that individual is a personal brand. Certainly, if you were to ask them, or in many cases these days, their agent. Um, so what, what influencer deals have you seen in the jewelry space? I mean, that's a great, I mean, this is a long time collaboration, right? Like Elizabeth Taylor, like who, you know, we can think of a million different um, Maria Callas. Like I can think of, you know, Cleopatra, like a million different uh, actual Cleopatra, like so many um, different stars and celebs and influencers use jewelry to communicate something about their status or their state of mind. Or like we were saying with Harry Styles there, relevancy with the way culture is changing. So I think there's no limit on that. And I think it happens out of people's own desire to communicate that as well as, you know, these corporate agreements where people agree to wear things. Um, but I, it's cool. I, I love seeing um, the, and hopefully now that we're going to see more award shows and stuff, it'll be really interesting to see, particularly the way men are finally really being allowed to to wear jewelry. Um, we see a lot, you know, on the legal side, you know, there are um, sort of rules around the ways that you can and can't work with influencers. So we help people understand that and guide them through that process. Um, and everybody loves to wear jewelry. So <laughs> we don't see a lot of resistance um, to being an ambassador of that type. Um, but again, like, I mean, we saw earlier this year with the Beyonce conversation. I mean, there's a lot of other cultural conversations that this yeah. overlaps with. So I don't know that once you put something out there, right, you can't control it. So it is also interesting to see the kind of twists and turns some of these campaigns are taking away from what the intended message is. Right. Well, one of those cultural conversations is, is the notion of a unisex design or, you know, uh, what someone adorns themselves with not being targeted necessarily to men or women, but but more just a gender fluid um, person. Yeah. Do you see that as a growing category? And uh, what are some of the brands that you think are, are notable in that space? Um, I mean, I'm seeing just like pearls as a category being a signifier. I think I recently saw Pete Davidson in a pearl a choker, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that seems to be, the sort of category that we're saying, but, and I, and I think right now, perhaps you see it a lot more with like custom pieces, 
more than branded pieces in, in my, just in my noticing, you might be seeing something different out there. And then obviously, I mean, we haven't even talked about this, but watches, I mean, if you think jewelry is doing well, yeah. watches are like, cause we're in such this moment, right? With like crypto and whatever, like this collectibles moment. So watches really satisfy that primal need for gold and valuables and commodities and this sort of collectibles thing. So it's just, um, watches are just like through the roof. So I don't know if that, that's not exactly your question, but I think men maybe are building a wardrobe of watches in a way that they wouldn't have before. Um, and yeah, I think pearls are what I'm seeing the most. And then maybe little, people getting a little bit more uh, spicy with their lapel pins and, and you know, brooch sort of wearing a bit of a color, uh, color gems on a, on a brooch and so forth. So um, yeah, I don't know, are you, what are you seeing? Well, personally, I'm seeing a lot less of the, the completely adorned wrist a la Johnny Depp, you know, where, where you can't see any skin up to the elbow because there's so many bracelets on it. Um, but brooches are, I think, for tailored clothing in particular and formal wear, uh, a great way to have some self-expression without taking a man's look into just a costumey nature. Uh, and so I think, you know, what we've seen in that um, regard uh, we'll see more of, and uh, you know, I'm kind of welcoming, trying to bring that into my personal presentation. Um, you know, but for me, most jewelry that 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 I wear uh, comes from trips. I, I like to purchase jewelry while on vacations. Uh, reminds me of the place that I've been. Um, it's it's almost exclusively locally produced, and so you know, I feel good about supporting local artisans and, and there's just a connection to the place that is intimate when you put something um, like a piece of jewelry on. And that speaks to that sentiment and emotion that jewelry like carries so wonderfully. And the other thing we haven't said is, you know, bridal is the, um, the total foundation of, of yeah. uh, the jewelry industry. And with, the, um, with all kinds of love and marriage being accepted and celebrated, um, there has been like massive uptick in men's fine jewelry with big diamonds and big stones for those, um, what, for same-sex uh, couples. And I think for heterosexual couples too, there's a little bit more permission now. Um, and so you're not just seeing that gold band, that boring gold band, the classic gold band, I should say. Um, but, you know, men are kind of getting some really interesting things happening on their uh, wedding fingers too. Yeah. Well, Maybe back to you personally a bit. Uh, do you have any, and I won't ask specific to jewelry because you, you, you have your own style and it's not just what you adorn yourself with on the jewelry side. Any, any style avatars for you that have informed the way you presented yourself? You're, you're in an industry and in a role where you, you, you look professional, but elegant. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, nuances to the way that you have to present yourself. Um, so who are some of those style avatars for you? So I think um, this is so hard, right? Because <laughs> there's so many. Um, I love color. So it's two things. I love color. And then I sort of really like admire people who are the opposite of what I am. Um, so on the color side, I love the way that David Hockney has presented himself over his life. And I think his vibe um, of his work 
and of his personal pre presentation really align or have been interesting his entire life. Yeah. In a way that's not over overwrought or you know um, that seems natural to him. I really like that a lot. And you know to be the most boring like mid forties white girl ever like. Sofia Coppola has been like major, major influence since I was a teenager. Um, I mean, since I was like 12 years old um, and continues to be. And I, I pick her as an opposite because I think her restraint, you know, she exercises a lot of very chic restraint um, that, is, uh, that is really admirable. And I think um, serves you well, especially as you get older and, you know, being a director, you no, know, not being an actress, but being a director, a young woman and a director taken seriously, but still fashionable. Um, there weren't a lot of women, young women in that space at the, in the time she was in it. So that's um, really great. And then lately, Rossi De Palma, you know, the, act, the Spanish okay, actress. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love her. I mean, so that from the, like, <laughs> I love the over the, I love the ridiculous, uh, people who are just really expressive and again ha she's maintained her point of view through her life and I advise I really admire the vibrancy with which she approaches her self-presentation and her style that is a good list uh let's let's get another list from you okay uh, and this I will ask a little specific to jewelry okay. uh, I typically ask what cities do you think are the most stylish but I would love to hear really from a jewelry perspective, oh, what city can maybe, you know, give us, if you can give us two or three, that would be great. Um, okay, this is off the top. Okay, so I'll say this. So I grew up between Oklahoma and Texas. So I'm going to have to go home to Dallas for this one because nice. um, for style, I wouldn't pick it overall, but for jewelry, they are not afraid to wear all their diamonds at once and be proud of it. And it's fun. Why not? You should have fun. <laughs> you know, like, if, if, why not? It's, it's a, an exuberance and, uh, uh, it, you know, going to charity events or I, I've been to uh, my share of uh, cotillions and balls and coming outs and stuff. And uh, it's fun to see that out and sparkling. Um, and then I feel like so much of my travel has been a little bit more remote. Like, I feel like I haven't been in a lot of places where people have been sort of showing off their jewelry. I mean, I have been to some industry events in um, Bangkok and that's fun, right? To see the, um, some of the, especially the rubies there. And uh, likewise, I went to some uh, really great industry events uh, down in Bogota and got to see some really beautiful um, emerald pieces in real you know, people were really wearing. Um, so I think off the top, those would be the ones. Because I want to say like my going to India, but I feel like it was more rural. And so I would just be like making that up. But obviously, Jaipur is a great jewelry city too. Right. Well, listen, Tiffany, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. And any last words, whether they are shout outs to nonprofits that you work with or your membership? Yeah, I would say um, we ourselves are a nonprofit. We're a 501c6. Uh, so shout out to JBC. <laughs> and I hope that um, if you are listening and you're uh, in the jewelry world or want to know more about what's going on in the jewelry world on the legal side, that you'll join us as a member. We have obviously tons of member benefits to help you 
make your make sure your business is thriving and flourishing and we have a great community that you can be part of and just i've been so excited for this it's so nice to spend time with you and this is such a cool podcast i'm very honored to be your guest so thank you so much for having me well thank you for coming on and everybody thank you for listening till next time bye now you've been listening to the laws of style with douglas hand for more information go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.